Hi, and welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today, we're going to talk again about Russia's war in Ukraine, and we're going to talk about some of the global fallout from the war. We have reached today an important decision in good cooperation between the government and the president of the republic. It will be based on a strong mandate. With the president of the republic, we have been in close contact with governments of NATO member states and NATO itself. Finland and Sweden will be warmly welcomed into the NATO military alliance. That was the message from all NATO foreign ministers at a meeting in Berlin, except for one. Turkey has made objections, saying the Nordic nations are hosting what it calls terrorist organizations, pointing among others at the PKK, the Kurdish Workers' Party. So we'll look today at the Finnish and Swedish applications to NATO ahead of the alliance's leaders meeting in Madrid next week. We just heard Finnish Prime Minister Sanna Marin talking about that. And we also heard reporting on some of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's objections to Finnish and Swedish membership. We'll then look at some of the scenarios in Ukraine in the weeks ahead and what they mean for NATO policy. Plus, we're going to talk about how the war is perceived in other parts of the world, especially given its economic repercussions, the global commodities crisis, sharply spiking costs of food and fuel, and how some leaders blame Western sanctions for that as much as they blame Russia's aggression in Ukraine. The head of the African Union, Senegalese President Macky Sall, says he's happy and reassured after talks in Russia with President Vladimir Putin. Following his meeting in Sochi, Sal appealed to the West to ease their sanctions on Russia. Take a listen. Russia must also be able to export fertilizers and food products, mainly cereals, since it's the country that exports the most cereals. Obviously, these requests are incompatible with sanctions. That's why we decided after this exchange to appeal to Western partners. So I'm really delighted this week to welcome on Alexander Stubb, who is the former Finnish Prime Minister and also a trustee of the International Crisis Group. He's really one of the best thinkers, not only, of course, on Finnish foreign policy, but also on European security and world affairs more broadly. Alex, welcome on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So... We're going to talk, obviously, about the Ukraine war, some of the ways it could go and, and what that might mean for Western, for NATO policy. We're also going to look a little bit at something that, that I know you've spent some time thinking about, which is why much of the non-Western world has sort of distanced itself from Western efforts to isolate Putin. But I'd like to start, uh, Alex, if we can, with the Finnish and Swedish applications to NATO and their, and their implications. Now, Obviously, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has had a major impact on Finnish perceptions of their country's security, shifted public opinion very quickly. Do you want to say something about that? I mean, why did it take Ukraine this time around to have such an impact rather than the 2014 Crimea annexation, intervention in Donbass, or even going further back, Georgia in 2008 and the uh, the sort of Abkhazia, South Ossetia interventions? Yeah, I guess two answers. One is a little bit longer, the other one is shorter. The longer arch here is to understand that the Finns have been quite good at, uh, you know, shifting tack when uh, history asks for it. So in 1809, when Sweden lost us uh, to Russia, we maximized our autonomy with, you know, language, culture, uh, identity, uh, even currency. Then in 1917, when we had the opportunity to declare independence in the middle of the Bolshevik Revolution, we did that. Uh, in 1944, we accepted a reluctant peace with uh, Stalin. 
lost 10% of our territory. Uh, in 1991, only a few months after uh, the Soviet Union collapsed, actually then on the 18th of March, 1992, we filed for an application for EU membership. And I think the similar thing happened and on the 24th of February. Finnish public opinion on NATO, and this is my second point, uh, had been quite reluctant or lukewarm to put it diplomatically. So you had about 50% of the population uh, against and about 20 in favor. I belong to that little minority of 20% for the better part of 30 years. But when Putin uh, attacked Ukraine um, overnight, actually in an opinion poll taken on the 23rd, 24th and 25th of February, Finn shifted. So it went basically from 52 to 52% in favor and and about 20 plus uh, against. And, and now, you know, we're talking about 80% in favor. And in parliament, there was 188 members of parliament that voted in favor of NATO membership and eight against. So it, it's it's a big shift, sure. And uh, why were you ahead of Finnish popular opinion in a way? I mean, why, why did you support NATO membership even before this display of Russian aggression? Well, I guess I've always been very Western oriented. I, I got my undergraduate degree in the United States, actually started studying in 1989. So we're talking, you know, end of the Cold War, the Berlin Wall comes down, you know, Finland uh, gets an opportunity to file for membership in the European Union, uh, the East and the West meets again, uh, end of history, you know, towards liberal democracy, social market economy and and globalization. And I felt that, you know, we should join the security umbrella uh, of uh, Europe and of the transatlantic uh, relationship. And I felt that we should have done it at the same time with EU membership. Now, I guess with hindsight, had there been a referendum, the vote would have been actually negative. Uh, but what we did instead then was to uh, integrate ourselves as closely as possible to NATO with our military equipment and, of course, to the United States. So I was head of the Kurd because I believed that this was an organization that Finland always belonged to and it would be a good security repellent uh, against Russia. And we'll talk in a moment about Turkish President President Erdogan's, uh, you know, some of his objections. But let's assume that the Turkish concerns can be overcome. How does Finnish and Swedish membership sort of change the balance of force, particularly around the Baltic Sea? Well, I think it's a win-win proposition for Finland and Sweden, obviously, but uh, I think more so actually for NATO, for the Baltic Sea region, uh, for Northeastern Europe, uh, for the alliance, and actually for European and global security. And the reason is, is very simple, that you're probably getting in two countries that have a very similar NATO profile to that of, say, Norway, uh, Iceland, and, and Denmark. So it, it, it's not, you know, an aggressive membership in any which way. On top of that, uh, with Finland, you're getting one of the largest standing military forces uh, in Europe with 900,000 men and women in reserves, 280,000 that can be mobilized in wartime with 62 F-18s with a purchase of 64 F-35s, one of the most sophisticated land-to-air and air-to-land missile defense systems. You add on to that the Swedish Navy and the Swedish Air Force, and you can see that suddenly around the Baltic Sea region, we have something like 250 fighter jets. So, you know, we're talking about countries that are more NATO compatible than most NATO countries themselves. We've been involved in NATO exercises in the region. Finland was in K4 in Kosovo uh, and in ISAF in Afghanistan. So, so in that sense, a safe pair of hands, which will increase security in the region rather than decrease it. So, so far, this has 
run into several objections from President Erdogan, and partly, uh, but not only related to the to, to the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the Kurdish insurgent group that Turkey designates a terrorist, uh, the US and the European Union do the same. And uh, Erdogan says that some PKK members are based in the Nordic countries, plus Turkish anger at Western support of what Ankara views as a PKK affiliate, the Syrian Democratic Forces, which have been fighting the counter-ISIS campaign in Syria, and there's other Turkish demands too. And Erdogan may be playing domestic politics, of course, distracting from the economic situation at home. But initially, people seem pretty confident that his objections could be overcome ahead of the NATO summit at the end of this month. But now, from what I understand, Finnish Swedish diplomats feel they've sort of reached an impasse or they've got as far as they can for now with their Turkish counterparts. Is that your reading too? And if so, what do you make of that? Well, I'm actually quite relaxed about it. And uh, I think the demands of Erdogan uh, are basically threefold. The first one is linked to PKK, uh, Kurds and, and terrorism. Uh, the second one is linked to an arms embargo, uh, which was put forth by the European Union uh, in the wake of uh, war in Syria. And the third one, which is probably the most difficult one and the real one, really, uh, is a Turkish purchase of F-35s from the United States, which was the program which pretty much grounded and frozen uh, after Turkey bought some S-400 defense missile systems from Russia. So I, I think what, what President Erdogan is doing is, is on one hand perhaps playing a bit of a domestic political game. He's got elections coming up next year. Um, and on the other hand, um, he, he wants to put pressure on America to, to get those F-35s. Uh, impasse? No, I'm quite confident that we'll find a solution, you know, s- sooner rather than later. Uh, whether it'll be Madrid or not, I, I, I really don't know. I, I know that uh, as we are recording this, uh, only yesterday, um, Finland, Sweden, Turkey and representatives of NATO met in Brussels. I don't have any intel on, on that meeting, but perhaps the noises, sounds and murmurs that we're getting from there are fairly uh, positive, but also a message that it's, it's, it's unlikely to find a solution before the, the Madrid meeting. Having said all of that, uh, you know, Finland has always been a friend of Turkey. We we were the presidency when we opened the negotiations for the EU for Turkey. I was foreign minister when I established Friends of Peace Mediation together with Ahmed Davatolu in the UN. Um, you know, we've always had very good relations and our president has been very clear that we take Turkish um, security seriously. So, at the end of the day, we will find a solution. And in the meanwhile, I think we feel quite secure about where we are with our, um, you know, bilateral mutual security assurances, etc. And the way that uh, that Moscow has responded, generally, given some of President Putin's other statements during the war, Moscow has been reasonably circumspect, reasonably sort of restrained in its statements about Finnish and Swedish membership. With the sort of caveat that, you know, it depends a little bit what forces and what weapons NATO deploys to new members if the membership goes ahead. So, I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, should that factor into calculations in any way? Well, I mean, I guess the starting point is to say that, you know, this enlargement would not have taken place was it not for Putin's attack on Ukraine. I mean, Finland and Sweden would not have joined. So if if you think of Putin's attack in Ukraine as, as a bankruptcy, uh, Finland and Sweden in that bankruptcy, we are already written down as NATO members. So, you know, I think that's the way in which uh, Kremlin sees it. Probably didn't expect it 
you know, this sort of unintended consequence, a bonus even, uh, if you will. But it happened because of that. Um, at the same time, I think that Kremlin sees Finland and Sweden as, you know, fairly safe pair of hands. Cooperation has been quite good historically, certainly also after uh, the post-Cold War period. Uh, relations have been quite cordial, not aggressive. Um, language used has been quite moderate, I think, on both sides. So I, I'm not saying I'm super relaxed, but I'm, I'm certainly not you know, too worried about the reaction coming from Russia because they also understand that they, they would not have the possibility or the capability to basically work on two fronts at the moment. They're very preoccupied um, in, in, in Ukraine and, and then to start creating havoc about, you know, two formerly military non-aligned countries joining NATO because they caused it uh, would be probably unwise from the Russian side. And so could we talk a little bit then about sort of NATO policy, Western policy more broadly related to the Ukraine war? I mean, for the most part, Western leaders have trod quite a difficult balance between giving Ukraine the, the weapons, the financial support uh, that it needs, uh, signaling very clearly how much they're behind Ukraine uh, to, to hold Russian forces uh, at bay, obviously, uh, President Zelensky's leadership and, and sort of Ukrainian determination is a big part of that as well. But clearly, Western support has been critical, all the while uh, trying to avoid too high a risk of es escalation into a direct war between NATO and Russia. I mean, generally speaking, do you think that NATO has got that balance right? I do. Uh, I mean, uh, there's not that much more that could be done. I mean, again, if we go back to the early days of the war, um, I think many were surprised at the determination um, and the efficiency and the unity of both the European Union and NATO in terms of rolling out the sanctions, first four waves coming from uh, Europe and a little bit later from the United States and the United Kingdom. Uh, then that being sort of added on uh, a few weeks later, um, then also uh, support, financial support, uh, support in armaments. Uh, there isn't really that much more that NATO or the EU can, can actually do. Having said all of that, you know, if Putin had just walked into Kiev, as many expected, uh, in a few days, I, I think the unity and the determination of the West would have looked very different. We could have been in a sort of Georgia 2.0 or Crimea 2.0 type of a situation. So, uh, you know, when, when Zelensky says that he's fighting for the freedom and the values of the West and especially of Europe, I think he's right, you know, and, and we should be grateful for the sacrifices that he uh, and, and, you, and, and Ukraine make. Um, could we have done something more? I, I don't think so. You know, there's, I mean, you know, early on there were, uh, talks about no-fly zones and and others, but that you know, then we're getting into you know military activity that could have potentially escalated the the conflict. Having said that, it's it's quite interesting to see now that that you sort of clearly have two camps in Europe and elsewhere as well. You have the ones who want peace and now, and then you have the ones who want defeat of of Russia. And to be honest, it'll probably be somewhere in between uh, the two but not much more NATO could have done at this stage. And as you, as you say, there have been these two camps, or at least sort of a lot of media attention on these sort of emerging divisions. And certainly there's differences in the way that different Western leaders talk about the war. But you don't get a sense that these are maybe a bit over-egged, that in reality they haven't, at least not yet, had much impact on actual policy. 
Yeah, in reality, the direction is is very clear. I've I've said it from the beginning. We're sort of beyond the point of no return, and whether you like it or not, Russia will be fully isolated, and that means political, economic, financial isolation. It also means sports, culture, uh, transport, uh, and uh, at the end of the day, full energy as well. Which, you know, of course, from a long perspective, it's not very comfortable to have 1,340 kilometers of border with the biggest North Korea in the world. Uh, but I'm sure that, you know, Russia will find then avenues eastbound and southbound uh, of, of cooperation. But that is the reality, a, a totally split uh, Europe, where on one side of the new Iron Curtain, you have you have an isolated Russia, and on the other side, uh, you have more or less 40 uh, European um, democracies abiding by international law and 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 rules. Uh, and 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 the the unity is, is quite steadfast. But usually, what happens in the public discourse is that you know if there is a delay, say in the oil embargo coming from. Um, the Prime Minister Orban and Hungary, that is then being highlighted as as a portrayal of disunity. Having said all of this, I, I think unity will last only to a certain point. I can already start detecting, and I have been for almost two months now, certain war fatigue. You know, it's a natural reaction. It's a it's 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 obviously quite sad, but the truth is that the human mind starts to wander in in different directions, as does then public opinion, and thus you know the importance of having this conversation about you know peace or justice, kind of, which uh, which one which one should we should we go for, and and because people now back home, so in 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 Europe and and also in the United States and the UK, uh, are starting to focus on on you know inflation, stagflation, food prices, energy prices. Uh, the migration crisis, um, and you know, we we haven't seen half of it yet. And and when that happens, I think the focus will shift from solidarity, unity, and support for Ukraine to probably a slightly more split Europe. But that's quite normal. And I'd like to talk in a moment about the sanctions, uh, particularly after we've talked a little bit about perceptions of the war in other parts of the world. But the peace justice discussion that you talked about, I mean, I'm sure you've seen it. There's this very interesting polling done by the European Council of Foreign Relations, which looked at popular opinion in different countries in Europe, and that it was sort of shifting towards the peace side of the big simplification. But even though European publics sympathised enormously with Ukrainians, they want the war to end as soon as possible, uh, rather than punishing Russia. And they want to have their politicians focused on stuff like the cost of living crisis, the economic downturn. Also, the sort of thing that right-wing populists tend to do well out of, which is another dimension to it. And I mean, in that sense, there's been a lot of criticism of President Macron, for example, for making comments about sort of making sure Russia wasn't humiliated, that in the end there's going to have to be some sort of compromise. But isn't he in some ways more in tune with the sort of way that opinion's moving in Europe? Uh, Well, first of all, I was in the... uh annual meeting of the European Council for Foreign Relations in Berlin, Sunday, Monday. And it was, you know, fascinating to have the conversations and the study that you referred to was presented there as well. In in the terms that, that you said, um, yeah, I guess, you know, I mean, if, if you start looking at raw opinion polls and where people want to see this end, I mean, if you ask the question, do you want peace? I mean, it's not exactly like you're going to say, no, I want war. So the devil lies in the detail and, and the question itself. I think it's very important for European leaders now to just show the 100% support to Ukraine and especially its President Zelensky. 
and and of course it's a difficult balance you know where i mean you, you do have this school of thought which i i to a certain extent belong to myself where i i, I do think that that putin needs to be defeated uh, any talk about him saving face, I, I find quite repugnant. Actually, you know, he's 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 you know he's he's killing, murdering women, children, innocent human beings. To be fair, though, Alex, it, it wasn't Macron saying that Russia needed to save face rather than Putin himself. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I guess so, but you know, I mean, I, coming from a country that has been attacked by the Soviet Union and has has lost ten percent of its territory, including the birthplace of my grandparents and my father uh, to a grand aggressor, which was the Soviet Union. I mean, you know, it's not exactly like I can say here, yeah, it's okay for you to save face. So it's, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, a leader is a leader, a state is a state, but a leader leads a state. So in, I think what we need to look here is more the sequence, right? So how do we get to peace? Well, that needs to be determined by the Ukrainians. What does that peace mean? Well, unfortunately, that peace is not going to be pretty. It rarely is, which means, you know, a compromise. Realistically, it's very difficult to imagine, you know, going back to status quo February 24th. And if that's the case, how far then do you push it? And do you get regime change? So what I want to say is that in the short term, I think Russia needs to be defeated. But in the long term, hopefully there will be one time a day when Russia abides by international law and doesn't behave aggressively to towards its neighbors and 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 break international law, uh, so it, it it's a really difficult nut to crack. I do admit. And what does Russian defeat? I mean, what does that entail? I mean, is that back to back to the February the twenty fourth lines? Is it out of Ukraine altogether, including Crimea? Is it the end of President Putin's government? I mean, what exactly does defeat entail? And to, to be candid, right now, the most likely scenario for, for the moment, and again, there's a short term and a long term, exactly as you say, but for the now, the most likely scenario appears to be fairly static front lines in Donbass and in the south with the Russians holding on to the areas that they've just captured north of, of Crimea. Maybe some sort of pause in fighting if both sides see an advantage to pause and to regroup, but it would be nothing more than that. But, you know, so far... The idea of Ukraine being able to push Russia out of the territories it's currently controlling, that seems a stretch for the moment, at least. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could say that from a Western or Ukrainian perspective, there's what I would call the perfect peace. And then there's the ugly peace. And the perfect peace, of course, is, you know, return to as things were pre-2014 which means Crimea, which means Donbass, as parts of, of, of Ukraine. Uh, having said that, of course, if you look at Donbass today, it's completely destroyed. You know, it's, and for what is, is, is my question? You know, for the ego of a Russian leader, I mean, it just goes beyond me. Uh, and, and the second one is then the ugly piece, uh, which is the more likely scenario, not the one that we want. But, you know, we're not even then in that case looking at, at frozen conflicts, as we did in, in South Ossetia and Abkhazia uh, in Georgia. But we might be looking at, at annexation of territory. And, you know, again, if that's the case, it's, it's I mean, how do you how do you give a, a sort of a gracious exit to, to Russia from that? You just can't because they have violated all basic rules and norms of international law. And you cannot let that happen. Uh, if we want to live in a, in a in a civilized world, 
And we haven't even started the discussion on war crimes yet, what, what that means. So, so it's, it's, it's a very difficult impasse. And I guess if I were to predict, I, I, I just think we're in this for the long haul, I'm afraid. And Alex, could I just ask one more on this before we move to sort of views about the war in other parts of the world? So both sides seem to be taking very heavy casualties, and certainly the Russians have suffered enormous losses since the start of the war, but the Ukrainians too. I mean, President Zelensky himself, the Minister of Defence, just recently have cited sort of very high numbers of Ukrainian casualties uh, over the past few weeks. So maybe that they come to a point where not necessarily a ceasefire, no formal agreement, but some informal lull in fighting that both sides see a pause, even if it's temporary, as, as in their interests, like as a, as a sort of opportunity to regroup, even if then the front lines stay fairly static. Now, Western leaders have said that they'll take their cue from Zelensky, but how sort of should they respond if there is some sort of truce like that or a lull in fighting along those lines? I mean, what are the risks for for NATO policy in a scenario like that? Well, I think the key is to take the cue from Zelensky and, and do what he wants. We also have to understand that the, the cost of war, just keeping Ukraine running at the moment, by some estimates, we're talking about 60 to 70 billion euros a year. So five to six billion plus per month. And, you know, it's those are colossal sums. Um, if you just think about, I mean, a country like Finland, our annual budget is 50 to 55 billion. That's an annual budget to run the whole country, basically, on the public sector side. So we're, we're talking about massive monetary uh, issues here. Um, will there be sort of an impasse or a, a cool down uh, during the summer period? I mean, could very well be, but but what does Zelensky want to do? And then, you know, it is, will this allow Russia to regroup? Um, you know, what are going to continue to be the hotspots in the war? Um, you know, how long does this sort of uh, uh, non-war fatigue uh, go on in, in Ukraine? So I, I, I really don't have an answer for this. And, uh, you know, we can always go back in history and have a look and say, OK, you know, the Winter War when the Soviet Union attacked Finland lasted 105 days. And then there was sort of a an intermittent peace when before there was then the war of continuation. So, I mean, that could be, I guess, one scenario, but but I, I, I really don't know. And so you've written quite a bit on the way other parts of the world have reacted initially in the in the sort of UN General Assembly votes with the sort of overwhelming show of support for Ukraine, but then subsequently many countries with a lot of regional distinction and for very different reasons have in some ways distanced themselves from the West's efforts to isolate Russia. Um, do, do you want to say a word or two about um, about that? Yeah, sure. I, I think I'm trying to look at things from a Western perspective and, and highlight this sort of misconception that this war is only about, you know, Russia and the West. I, I actually think it's about more than that. It's also about the West and the rest. And, uh, you know, when I saw the UN vote 141 uh, against Russia, 35 abstaining and four with Russia, I mean, of course, you know, you take a little bit of joy in the numbers, but then when you start scraping the surface, you realize that the 141 was actually quite soft and scraped together last minute, at least according to all the sources that I've I've discussed who are close to the UN. And then you look at the 35 that abstained and you understand that's over half of the world's population, of course, because it includes China and, and, and India. So the, the case is not that clear cut. And, and then when I started to look around a little bit more, I mean, reactions in, in say, Africa, 
where you have a lot of non-aligned countries. I think you've had many good conversations in the Africa Horn uh, podcast as well from the crisis group on on, on this. Um, you know, some of the countries are saying, listen, this is your war. Uh, but it has ramifications on us in terms of prices of fertilizer, uh, in terms of prices of food and actually distribution of food, uh, not least when it comes to grains, uh, and then in, in, in terms of energy prices. So deal with it. And on top of that, don't come here and give your high moral ground as former colonial powers about territorial integrity and, and moving moving borders. Then you start looking at Latin America. You know, you have, interestingly enough, uh, Lula from the left and Bolsonaro from the right in, in Brazil saying the same thing and saying that this is actually, you know, the fault of, uh, of, of Zelensky and, and Ukraine, you know, thesis with which I, I disagree. Then there are a lot of path dependencies like India, for instance, when it comes to uh, military equipment, military imports, most of it coming from, from Russia. Now, the case that I find super interesting from a power politics perspective is China. A lot of people thought that it would pivot to Russia, but obviously it didn't. Uh, and the reason is very simple. Um, you know, it is afraid of secondary sanctions. Uh, its business with Russia is 80 billion. Business with Europe is 800 billion. Um, so, you know, it, it might be giving some lukewarm um, um, uh, communications support for Russia. And it might go into, you know, the power vacuums that emerge when Europe leaves because of sanctions. But other than that, this is not going to be one of these classic cases where, you know, China and, and Russia are going to unite. So, the, you know, the reaction, it, 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 it's quite patchy. It, it's not as uh, emotional. It's not as close as, as it is uh, for us here in Europe, which is, of course, understandable. The further away you are from the conflict, the less you feel it pertains to you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and as you say, different reasons in different parts of the world. But there does sort of seem, you know, in some ways to be this sort of disconnect between Western leaders who sort of understandably see the war as not only a European security issue, but a wider global problem, the violation of Ukraine's sovereignty, as you say, the violation of international law. You know, that's a matter for the world, not just for, for Europe. But in other parts of the world, many leaders see this as Europe's war or a struggle between NATO and Russia rather than Ukraine defending itself against Russian aggression. But seemingly increasingly overriding this is this sort of sense, and, and I'm interested in, in, in what you think of this, that the that the West has sort of maybe maybe not been attentive enough to the commodities crisis and, and the impact of the sanctions that we talked about. And although clearly Russia's responsible for the consequences of the war, plus it's blockaded Ukraine's Black Sea ports, stopped the export of, of Ukrainian grain, attacked grain silos, stolen grain, stopped exports of some of its own commodities too, and blamed the sanctions for that. So, you know, that's an important context. But sanctions do also play a role. The Senegalese president, African Union chair, Macky Sall, for, for example, who's who's been invited to the G7 meeting uh, this weekend, he's been quite explicit that African leaders, uh, leaders in other parts of the world see sanctions as part of the problem. And you know, even if Russian grain and fertilizer aren't sanctioned themselves, it's hard for other countries to pay for them with the sanctions on the banking sector. It's hard to ensure Russian shipments and you know, Western governments are reluctant to have that discussion. And, you know, maybe they're not losing, but definitely they're not winning the debate in the global south. They're not winning this battle of, of perceptions. And I mean, in some ways, in terms of relations between the, the West and, and the rest, as you say, in some ways, it's quite a dangerous moment, right? 
Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, if, if, if you look at the early stages of the war, obviously, you know, Zelensky won the communications battle, uh, you know, 100 to 0. Uh, but now on the commodities issue, uh, I think the, the, the Russians have been able to push their message, which of course is false. I mean, they steal <laughs> grain from, from Ukraine, take it to themselves and then block it. So, but but it's a perception. And unfortunately, we live, you know, in in a world of perceptions at times. And and Europe and the West need to need to work on this to to make sure that first of all you you know point the finger at who is actually uh, at fault uh, and then secondly try to alleviate the pain pain as well. So I, I from what I understand this is very much an organizational issue, which from a communications perspective could go sour. But one thing that I do want to stress is that you know when I say this also about the West and the rest, it's also about the global order. You know, in in, in the sense that. There has been obviously a Western dominance and the whole rules-based order that we've created has been created in, in you know, you can call them universal values or, or Western values. You can agree with them or disagree with them. I happen to agree with them. Uh, I think they provide for the most just and best form of society. But the way in which the West has been dealing with these, um, you know, post-Cold War uh, hasn't exactly been humble. So, you know, I, I'd like to see a little bit of humility and a little bit of dignity in the way in which, uh, you know, the West deals with the rest, uh, a little bit more engagement. Uh, and, and this will, you know, require some difficult choices, I think, from the, from the side of the West. But that's why I think that the war in Ukraine has actually been a trigger uh, to this uh, conversation. And the difficult choices, I mean, don't the difficult choices at the moment come down to precisely some of the things that we've been talking about? in terms of whether it's a accommodation with Putin, whether it's the, the sort of the, the sanctions or, I mean, what, what, are, what, what, are, what are those difficult choices entail that don't touch on some of the things that we've already been talking about? I mean, are there others? Well, I, I think it's a balance between two things. One is, is rules, how you stick to them, or as the case might be with Putin and Russia, not. And the other one is values. And, and what I think the West needs to sort of understand is that if they want to maintain a rules-based world order, uh, there might have to be some compromises on the values side, because not everyone believes that, you know, liberal democracy, human rights, fundamental rights, um, equalities, you know, protection of minorities uh, are the right values. I happen to believe they are. Uh, but but there might be someone else who thinks of a different way. And, and the question is, can we engage in a dialogue which is not top-down or paternalistic, but is is bottom-up and engaging? That's, I think, the big question that, that we're going to have. But it's about basic behavioral patterns. And I, I think the sort of era of the arrogance of the West uh, is coming towards some kind of an end. Or if it doesn't, we're going to have to you know wake up and smell the coffee. And in some ways, maybe the the framing that certainly the Biden administration, but others as well, have have used of this being a sort of struggle between democracy and autocracy. I mean, that framing maybe that's not the the right one to persuade leaders in the global South. I mean, partly because some, as you say, are not Democrats, but also because it sort of rings hollow as inevitably the U.S. and others have close ties to many non-democratic governments. I mean, maybe an argument rooted in you know, the violation of Ukraine's sovereignty might have been a more powerful one. Yeah, could be. And I, I think this is the big conversation that needs to be held. Uh, I think, you know, the Cold War was bipolar, the Soviet Union, the United States and their allies. The post-Cold War was more or less unipolar with the American lead. Uh, we then started to wane after 9-11 and the financial crisis and, and, and Donald Trump. 
And now we live in a multipolar world. And, and the question is, is how do we keep this sort of multipolar world engaged in a multilateral rules-based system? Uh, and and I, I think this is something that all of us have to think about to, to, together, and it's not going to be easy. Tell me if this is a, a fair framing, that the gamble or, or the calculation in Western capitals is that sort of these sanctions, really comprehensive sanctions, you know, perhaps some of the toughest ever, they'll weaken Russia, weaken President Putin's hand to conduct similar aggression elsewhere. Now, maybe some people think that they'll shift incentives for the Kremlin. I think that seems unlikely. I don't see the Kremlin's calculations changing because of the sanctions. But you know, they may still weaken Moscow. And that the risks in terms of the global economy, the repercussions on food, fertiliser, fuel prices, the risks of potential knock-on effects those risks are sort of worth taking in service of that bigger goal, containing and attempting to isolate Moscow. I mean, do you think that's a fair way of portraying the calculation that Western leaders are making, the, the dilemma, if it, if it is a dilemma that they're facing? Well, I, I, I think the dilemma is, is, is very close to home. And, and, and that dilemma is Russia. And the question is, you know, what kind of instruments of power, instruments of war do you have against a grand aggressor? with the aim of uh, not sacrificing more lives. And I think sanctions is an instrument of power and an instrument of war, you know, as is energy and uh, as is currency, as is technology, uh, as is human shields at, at times. And, you know, the, the, it's the only instrument that we have. And, and the, the truth is that we cannot, we cannot allow a grand aggressor to... Uh, break blatantly international law, kill innocent people and, and go without any kind of, uh, you know, punishment. And the, the, the strongest punishment that we have uh, are sanctions. They hit the West as hard as they hit anyone else. Uh, you know, this is the price of peace. Uh, and and uh, that's why the dilemma is, is so complicated. Alex, really, thank you so much for coming on today and making time to, to talk. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of Crisis Group's work on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. We have transcripts for our shows, so if you want to reference or check up on anything you've heard, that should make it easier. They're also on our website. Thanks to our producers, Sam Mednick, Kevin Murphy, Finn Johnson, and thanks, of course, to all of you, to all our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcasts at crisisgroup.org or write to me directly at crisisgroup.org if you have any suggestions or comments. If you like the show, please don't be shy to leave us a positive rating or review. Next week, we'll probably talk in a bit more depth about some of those perceptions in the Global South that Alex and I discussed, how the Ukraine war is shaping not only the West's relations with Russia, but also Western capital's ties to other leaders around the world. So I very much hope you'll join us again for that.